patterns uh, are helpful. If you study a pattern, it tells you things. For instance, if, you, if your life is financially a little bit of a mess, and you hire a financial planner, a personal financial planner might sit you down and tell you to, for the next month, write down, document every single penny you spent. A pack of gum, uh, your bills, how much you spent on your phone, uh, tolls, just write it all down. Write down every single penny you spend so that at the end of the month we get together, we're going to look over everything you've spent and we're going to look for patterns. Where are you spending at a higher percentage than you should be spending? Where do you splurge? Patterns will be able to tell you how to rein it in and be more responsible. If you hire a personal trainer and you tell the personal trainer, I need help, uh, my eating's out of control, I I, I'm, I need to lose weight. I need to get fit. The trainer might tell you, I want you for one week to make a journal where you write down every single calorie you eat so that we can discern a pattern. Ooh, look at this pattern. I eat late. Look at this pattern. Look at all these calories I eat at work. Lunch wasn't that big, so what was it? Well, I'm snacking. I'm snacking the little jars of M&Ms. You know, you're finding patterns. I eat when I'm stressed. I eat when I'm hungry. I don't eat in the morning. I eat too much at night. Okay? Patterns to discern the behavior that's hurting you. And sin is like that. Sin will hurt you. Sin will destroy your life. But there's patterns that you can recognize to go, wait a minute, I recognize this. This needs to be taken care of. Now, fortunately, God doesn't set it up so that you have to live an entire life of destructive patterns, and then someday when you're 60 years old, 70 years old, 80 years old, you can look back in your life and now document and now figure out what the pattern is and now do something about it. God has given us the pattern already in other people's lives. Paul, when he's writing the Corinthians, he tells them, you know those Old Testament stories? Remember Exodus? You remember these guys? God delivered them through the Red Sea, and every time they were thirsty, he brought them water from, out of a rock, and the rock that followed them was Jesus Christ. They had Christ, but they, they sinned and they rebelled. Check out this verse uh, that Paul puts in there. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So you see what Paul's doing there? Exodus is there as a pattern, so you don't have to live out the pattern and figure it out later. It's the pattern there for you to see it now. So don't do the mistakes that they did. Learn from the mistakes that they did. And we're going to see that real poignantly in Exodus 32. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus 32. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure that one is brought to you. Exodus is the second book in the Bible after Genesis. And we find ourselves in a passage that in very many ways functions as a profile of sin. A profile of rebellion. What does disobedience look like? Now, if we can step aside out of ourselves and look at what we're doing in our lives, this is the kind of thing we might see, but it's hard to do that, so we're going to do that by looking at someone else. Exodus 32, we're going to see a profile of the behavior of sin. What sin is like? How does it get in there? How does it creep up? What are some warning signs? How does it function? How are we continually tricked by it? 
Exodus 32 lays out a profile. What's sad about it is they just had this glorious vision of God. The elders sat and they saw a vision of God and they ate and they drank rejoicing in this vision of God. He laid out this tabernacle. He's going to dwell with them. And then now we see sin creep up in a big way. The first thing we're going to notice is that sin oftentimes begins with impatience. God says, I'm going to do something, and you go, are you? It doesn't come in time. You do something else. Oftentimes, sin begins with impatience. Look at the opening verses. Look at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, remember Moses went up to get those tablets. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Wow. Let's skip the complaints of, hey, how much longer? Not, not hey, let's, uh, let's just keep marching. Maybe Moses will just catch up with us. How about, hey, Aaron, since Moses maybe died up there, can you be the new guy then? You're a priest, right? Can you? I mean, it's just full, just forget the whole thing. Let's just make gods now. Why do they do that? Because of a delay in what they want. Impatience gives birth to sin oftentimes. And really at the end of the day, what it is is a lack of faith. Through Moses, God said, Moses will be back. He wasn't back in their time frame. And so they walked away. Sin begins oftentimes with impatience, but sin always breeds in confusion. Look at the next few verses. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are the gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. A couple paragraphs, a few paragraphs ago, they were eating and drinking in front of a vision of the Lord, and now they're eating and drinking in front of a golden calf that they made out of their earrings and said, this is our deliverer. And if that looks completely ridiculous to you, that's the point. If you were to step outside of yourself and see your own destructive, sinful behaviors, you'd go, man, that's totally ridiculous. Why, why am I doing that? This is your out-of-body experience given to you so you don't have to make the same mistakes. And look how confusing it is. They have all this gold because they plundered Egypt. You remember on their way out, God told them, ask the Egyptians to give you stuff because they're going to give it to you. And they gave them gold and and cloths and all kinds of stuff. So they have a lot. Their kids, the wives, the children, the men, they have all these earrings. They take off the gold earrings. But look at what they said to Aaron. They said, make us gods, plural. They want to go back to the 
polytheism, the many God worship that they had back, that they witnessed back in Egypt, make us gods, plural. So then Aaron, he takes a graving tool, he makes a cast, he creates this golden calf out of those earrings. And then he says, these, at the end of verse 4, these are your gods, plural, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, what's weird there is they're using gods, plural, but they made one golden calf. They didn't make multiple golden calves. They made one golden calf, and they're referring to that one golden calf as gods, plural. Many gods, but they've got one golden calf. How does that make sense? I don't know. And to make it worse, they're not just saying, these are other gods that delivered us from Israel, but look at what Aaron says in verse 5. Aaron saw this. He built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. See how the word Lord is in all caps? We've talked about this before. That's Yahweh. So they say, Aaron, make us gods. Aaron makes a calf. They say, okay, these are the gods. And then the next breath, Aaron says, this is who delivered us, Yahweh. Yahweh are these gods. Yahweh's with these gods, one calf. Doesn't make sense, right? That's the point. It doesn't make sense because it's sin. Sin doesn't make sense. How many of us have ever sinned and then you're, you're, you, you get out of it, you come out of it, you're not stuck in that sin anymore, you look back and you're like, what was I thinking, right? What was I thinking? You weren't thinking. You didn't do it because it was rational. You didn't do it because it made sense. You didn't do it because it was logical. You did it because that's what you felt like doing. And even if somebody came alongside you and tried to rationally explain how this is going to destroy you, you didn't listen because it felt good, right? So this passage is showing you, look, sin doesn't make sense. God's plural, Yahweh, another God, a calf. It doesn't matter. We just want to get on with our lives and do what we want to do. Sin is born out of impatience. Sin breeds confusion. Sin is self-destructive. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, corrupted themselves. Sure, they've sinned against God. They've disobeyed. They've broken the commandments. But at the end of the day, they're corrupting themselves. He could have easily said, look, they they broke the first three commandments right off the top. You shall have no other gods before me. God's plural. You shall not make a graven image to worship me. This is Yahweh pointing to a graven image. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Pointing to a bull and saying that's Yahweh. Commandment 1, commandment 2, commandment 3. When it says that they ate and drank and rose up to play, that they weren't playing cards. There's dancing, revelry, who knows what else, and the breaking of all the other commandments, we can be sure. It is self-destructive because God says, look, these people, they're corrupting themselves. Sin also takes God things and makes them into evil things. Sin reverses good things that God wants for you and makes them into bad things that will destroy you. You look at that in verse 8. 
They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. They worshipped it and sacrificed to it. God just taught them how to worship, and he just taught them how to sacrifice. You remember, we've talked about it here. You kill the animal, half the blood goes here, half the blood goes there. This kind of animal, this kind of ram, this kind of lamb, all that. But they're doing it toward this bull. And the reason why we know it was Yahweh's specific type of worship is verse 6. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. We talked about that. The difference between a burnt offering and a peace offering. The burnt offering was for this, the peace offering was for that. So they're following what Yahweh laid out as worship to him. They're taking that, good idea, but not for you, these gods instead. And sin is like that. Sin wants to take something that's holy and good and pervert it. It's not that God doesn't want them eating and drinking and playing and dancing and having fun. It's not that he doesn't want them to enjoy life. It's they're supposed to do it under his commandments, his way. When they do it their way, they corrupt themselves. So, it looks fun, but it kills you. Verse 9 teaches that it stems from a rebellious heart and not from circumstances. We don't look around this and go, oh man, I sinned because of this situation. No, you didn't sin because of the situation. You sinned because your heart was rebellious and you took advantage of an open situation, an open opportunity to do it. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And so you think of the imagery of oxen that you're using to plow a field. Imagine a horse pulling a carriage. And you want to pull the horse, nudge the horse with the reins so that you go a certain way. But if the horse is stiff-necked, you, can't, you can tug, you can pull, you can try to get it. But that neck, it's stiff and it's not going where you want it to go. It's stiff-necked people. And God is saying, I have these commandments, these laws, and I'm trying to rein them in and trying to get them to go on the path that they're supposed to go. But their stiff necks prevent it. They're bent on disobedience. And so it's not that the opportunity came up to sin. It's that the heart was already bent on sin, and as soon as the opportunity came up, it bites. The problem is not the circumstance or the opportunity. The problem is the heart. Sin incurs God's wrath, verse 10. God speaking to Moses, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So God is going to wipe them out completely, start over with Moses, and technically he could do that because Moses is still from Abraham's lineage, and he can still keep the promise to Abraham through Moses and wipe everybody else out. Just keep Moses' family and start over. Moses will be the new Abraham. Incurs God's wrath. We've seen in this book already that God is compassionate. God is a saving God. He's a delivering God. He's the one that brought them up out of Egypt even though they didn't earn it, even though they didn't deserve it, even though they grumble. He gives them water out of a rock. They complain about food and he gives them bread that drizzles down from heaven and he brings quail into their camp and oops, we got a bunch of this army that's going to kill us. 
Moses picks his hands up and they destroy them. I mean, God is constantly providing for people that didn't do anything for it. God does it because he's merciful. God does it because he's compassionate. But then Moses also wants to communicate as he's giving us Exodus that that doesn't mean God is up there like, oh, they're sinning. It angers him. He's, he's not a robot, you know. It angers God. And sin incurs the wrath of God. And it would be just if he completely wiped them out. Fortunately for them, Moses intervenes. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens, of heaven, and of and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. We're going to look at this paragraph that I just read a little bit more next time. But suffice it to say, Moses intervened, he interceded, and because of that intercession, God relented. That doesn't mean some older translations say God changed his mind. That's actually a poor translation. And then other verses that are translated well when they say that God does not change his mind. He's not like a man who decides one thing and then changes his mind. So what he's doing is he's kind of setting Moses up for this intercession to demonstrate that it takes intercession to relent God's wrath. It takes intercession. We're going to look at that a little bit more next time. But right now, his intercession was successful. And then we continue with this profile of sin of what it looks like in verses 15 to 20. That sin has consequences. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. That's a lot of tablet stuff there. I'm going to just pause there for a second and explain something to you. All right, when you see those drawings and pictures of Moses with two tablets, okay, this is telling us it was written, both of those tablets had two sides to it, side A, side B. And it wasn't the first table of the law, the first four commandments, and then the second six on the other one. It was four and six on one tablet, four and six on the other, because in ancient times there were duplicate copies of these contracts, just like we do today. You'd be fool if you just had one copy of the contract and the other person's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like two duplicate copies, same signatures, right? That's what covenant looked like then. And what Moses is reminding us is, here's this covenant. I deliver you, you live in obedience toward me. Oops. You're not living in obedience. You broke the covenant. So Joshua, verse 17, heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, there's noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain, symbolically saying, you broke this covenant. Verse 20, he took the calf that they had made, 
and burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. <laughs> That's mafia, man. People wonder, why, why, did, why did he do that? Why did he grind it down and then make them drink it? We're not exactly sure. It doesn't really tell us. But I think it's kind of like, see the sin that you did for yourself? You're going to eat it now. And as they're drinking this bitter mixture of ashes and powdered gold and what used to be their earrings, and they're drinking it now, and they're drinking out of some desert brook, it's like God is communicating to them, you know, sin is real fun to brew, but it's tough to drink, ain't it? Fun when you were making it, not fun when you've got to reap it. That's what sin is like. Sin makes excuses that don't work. This is hilarious. Verses 21 to 24. It's only funny because we're not there and we're not them. Verse 21, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Did they waterboard you? Did they deprive you of sensory deprivation to get you to get, you know, like, did they torture you? What did they do to you? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. He looked Moses dead in the eyes and told him that. Man to man, straight in the face, he told him, out came this calf. You get flashbacks of the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, and there was this mixture of truth and, and error. And there's a mixture of truth and error here. Did they surround Aaron and say, make us gods who go before us? Yep. Did the reason that they give Aaron... Uh, was the reason that Moses was delaying from coming down and they're not sure what happened to him? Yep. But then there's the blame shifting. Well, you know these people, they're so set on evil. Well, if you weren't set on evil, you would have at least stood up to them, Aaron. You would have at least said something or you would have said, you can kill me, but I'm not making you a golden image. So he's blame shifting. He's, it's always somebody else. It's always there, but they did it. We're all just grown-up little kids. But, they, but he does it. What's it have to do with you? Blame shifting. And then on top of that, he's reinterpreting history. No, no, that's not what happened. I just, look, I was there. Here's what happened. And then, oops, it just happened. Sin doesn't just happen. We do it. Calves don't just pop out of the fire. They're a reflection of the idolatry in our hearts. And that's why they come to existence. Sin makes excuses that aren't excuses. And finally, sin thrives in a false peer pressure. Sin thrives oftentimes in a false peer pressure. Why do I say a false peer pressure? They surrounded Aaron, didn't they? It says they gathered to Aaron. And they said, make us gods. 
That might have been intimidating. A bunch of people surrounding Aaron at the same time and demanding that he make gods. And it sounds like, man, everybody wants to just ditch this Moses guy. But that's not necessarily the case. Look at verses 25 to 29. Verse 25. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. So here's Moses literally drawing a line in the sand and saying, Everyone who wants to follow Yahweh, come, come to me. What do they do? And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of, at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The Levites gathered to Moses. That doesn't mean the Levites were the only ones that crossed over and refused to repent, but he put the Levites in charge of killing the ones that didn't cross the line and said, no, even though Moses is back from the mountain, even though Moses is back and he's in charge, I don't want to follow him. I don't want to follow Yahweh. Even though that's the case, we're done. So the Levites took their swords and had to go back into the camp and kill the people that refused to follow. And some of them were brothers, sons, cousins, neighbors. God is saying, me or the rebels? Well, we're going to put the rebels down, Yahweh, because where else are we going to go? 3,000 people. Now, that's not the only ones that worship the calf, but those are the ones, obviously, They were demanding that we worship a calf. These are the ones that were the core of the rebellion. These were the ones that couldn't be swayed. You can't argue them out of it. They're going to rebel and they're going to do it. And there's 3,000 of them. That's a lot of people. If you go back to Exodus 12 and do the math on how many people there were, Exodus 12, 37 tells us there were 600,000 able men that came out of Egypt. So scholars figure out how many wives, how many kids, average it out. Two million plus people. One average I saw was 2.4 million people came out of Egypt. And out of 2.4 million people, 3,000 were the rebels. That's not everybody's doing it. You look at the news today and what's online and everyone talking about gay marriage and you know, the, the lights on the White House and everything, you would think that everyone's doing it. Everyone wants it. Everybody's doing that. But the percentage is so tiny. So you can have a minority loud voice and then a bunch of everyone else that doesn't necessarily agree, but they're just quiet. I remember once I was uh, at a gathering with a, with a bunch of guys, a bunch of Christian guys, and they all wanted to go out to eat at a place where I knew the servers were all scantily clad women. I'm like, well, I'm not going there. We were in the middle of nowhere. There's nowhere else to eat. At the time that we were thinking about it, there was literally nowhere else to eat. I was like, well, I just won't eat then, guys. They're like, come on. What's the problem? You've never seen it before? What's going on? What's the big deal? I'm like, guys, go ahead. 
I'll just stay back. Big argument for like 20 minutes. We ended up finding something else so we had to drive a little bit farther. The next morning, one of the guys pulls me aside and he's like, hey man, I really appreciated you being a voice last night because I didn't want to go either. And what I wanted to do was clock him in the head for making me be the only guy, <laughs> right? I, I thought I was the only dude that night. I'm like, wow, I, I went to bed that night like, man, am I like legalistic? Am I, what's, am, I, is, am I the problem? And then the next morning, thank you, man, thank you. I'm like, yeah, you. But next time, stand up, man. Well, that's what happened here. Aaron sees 3,000 people at least surrounding him, and everyone else is kind of like, nobody has the guts to stand up to 3,000 people out of 2 million people. It shouldn't be peer pressure. When you get people at school or at work, and they're like, yeah, everyone does it. Who's, who's everyone? You know, they say that blah, 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 you're a stick in the mud. Who's they? It's always they, and it's always everyone. It's always this undefined group of people that don't exist. It's a minority voice that makes you think that you're following the crowd, and oftentimes it's not the crowd. Now, sometimes it is the crowd, but oftentimes it's not the crowd. It just looks like it. Don't be naive. Sin, sin thrives under a false sense of peer pressure, even if it's not there. So this is a stark picture of sin, isn't it? Sin is impatient and confusing, and it's self-destructive. It reverses good things into bad things. It stems from a rebellious heart. It incurs the wrath of God. It's fun to brew, difficult to drink, makes bad excuses, and thrives under false peer pressure. God help us. He does. God does help us. You see that in the following verses, verse 25 and following. We see that it wasn't everyone, and there was a remnant, the majority, that said, no, we were wrong, that was wrong, we should follow Yahweh. They were complicit in the sin. They're not off the hook, but they weren't to the point where they just rebel against Yahweh. Another footnote, there will be people in your lives, and no matter how clear the gospel is to them, they don't want it. You might be witnessing to somebody and saying, man, if it's just clear, if they just get a better sermon, if they just, if they just get a better Bible translation, if they were just tuned into Moody Radio at the right time, they'll finally get it. Folks, God has to turn that light bulb on because if he doesn't, they, they don't want it. How clear was it? Here's the God with Moses that did all this delivering of you. They know this piece of junk was made out of earrings. They don't want the calf. They just don't want God. But God steps in with that remnant, with those people that, okay, yes, we messed up. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we failed. But we want to follow you. Okay, we can keep the covenant going if we've got that. So verse 30 and following, he says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. 
But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. You might see that last line and go, oh, so he did punish them? That's mercy because he was going to kill them. They got sick instead. But the point is, sin still has consequences. If you come to the Lord and you're atoned for in Jesus Christ, does that mean all the repercussions from sin go away? No, there's still repercussions for sin. You don't give your life to Jesus, and that means now I can sin and nothing, I'm bulletproof. There's no consequences at all. No, the consequences are there. The consequences might be worse because God disciplines those he loves. But we see this act of mercy and grace based on Moses' second intercession. Moses got, them, got God to not kill them, but now he says we need more. We need atonement, verse 30. So Moses goes up to make atonement, to see if there'll be atonement for the people. He knows what's needed. And he offers himself. Now, here's a little bit of a debate. I'll try to do this quickly because we're wrapping up. Some people think that what Moses was doing here was saying, if you're not going to save the people, well, then just kill me too. And at first glance, that looks like that's just basically what he's saying. If you're going to kill them, then blot me out of your book too. In other words, make me, I'll suffer forever and separation from you as well. I won't dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Just blot me out if you're going to do that to them. I think it's a little more than that. Some other commentators would agree that what Moses is asking for is a substitution, a swap. Okay? What he's saying is, it's, it's implied, I admit that, but I think what's implied is that what Moses is, he's saying a little bit more than, well, if you're going to kill them, kill me too. One hint is that he's, that's not a request. If you're going to kill them, well, then kill me too, doggone it. You know, like, mm, is that Moses' attitude before God? If you're going to kill them, well, then kill me too, you punk. You know, I don't, I don't think so. I think what he's saying, I know you're supposed to kill them, but take me. That's what he's saying. Another reason we know that is the reason why he went up there was verse 30, to make atonement. In the previous chapters, how does atonement happen? Something innocent is killed to substitute for the guilty. So when he tells him in verse 30, I'm going to go up and see if atonement can happen, and he goes up with no animal, some of them might have been going, man, I hope he doesn't mean himself. Like Isaac with the bundle of sticks, like where, where's the ram? Oh, God will provide. That awkward moment with Abraham and his son. Moses goes up there with no sacrifice to go make atonement. How's he going to have atonement happen? There's no ram caught in the thicket. I think Moses knows he's going to offer himself. I think that's exactly what he's doing. He knows the sacrificial system. God already set it up. And what he's asking is, God, I know they're supposed to die, but take me. God's response is no dice. God says to Moses, verse 33, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now, it looks like what he's saying there is, um, I'm only going to kill the ones that actually sinned against me, and the ones that didn't sin against me, they're not going to get blotted out. And so I can't do that, Moses, because it wasn't your fault, so I'm not going to make you pay for it. 
But if you look a little closer, what God is technically saying is everyone who's committed a sin has to be blotted out. Is Moses guiltless? Is Moses sinless? No. Well, then if he's not, he can't substitute for someone else that should be blotted out. He himself should be blotted out in the grand scheme of things. What God is communicating is not that substitution doesn't work. Substitution is what he just laid out with rams and goats and bulls and stuff. He's just saying, your substitution won't work. Good idea, wrong guy. What we need is a better lamb. What we need is a better sacrifice than what you can do or than what any animal can provide. And so, for now, we're going to have to use lambs. Later, we'll use an ultimate lamb. That's why John looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He knew exactly what the lamb meant in the Passover meal. So sin is utterly destructive, guys. It is utterly destructive. And you might be stuck in a place right now where you just don't see the pattern. Use Exodus 32 to kind of take a step back and go, look at what it'll do to me. Even if it's late at night and no one's looking and you're sneaking it past your wife or your husband or your kids, it doesn't make it less corrosive to yourself. Sin is destructive and it'll lie to you and it'll make it seem so fun to brew in the moment, you're just going to have to drink it later. Don't do it. But if you're in here this morning, you go, man, I've, I've brewed a lot of stuff that I've got to drink, and I'm, I'm, I'm a failure. Is there atonement? Yeah, there's atonement. There's atonement in Christ. He doesn't atone you to keep doing it. He atones you to bring you in a place where you obey, and you walk, and you serve him and follow him. That's available to you in the one who goes before us. Last insight in this verse, verse 34, he says to Moses, now, Go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. That's the promised land. Earlier in Exodus, that's where he said he's going to take them. Go lead them there. How? Behold, my angel shall go before you. My angel shall go before you. Now, we've talked about this a little bit before. I think it makes sense to see that this angel is not just a random messenger because this angel is synonymous with the very presence of God so that when they saw that angel, they can call that angel Yahweh. And say, Yahweh is speaking, we need to listen to his voice. So I don't want to go through all the evidence of that again, but I find it very interesting. Moses says, let me be the substitute, and he says, you can't be the substitute. Go back and take him to my promised land. My angel is going to lead you. And when you put it together with the rest of the Bible, you realize that angel is the substitute that's actually going to get them there. Our ultimate promised land, home, we get there not because we can fix our stuff and ignore sin. We all messed up. We get there because Christ makes atonement, and he's the one that leads us home. If you don't know him, I hope that you don't go home and still try to fix sin on your own. You can't. If you know him, and you're in a time right now where there's some rebellion, you're defiant, you're closing your ears. Ah, you don't want to listen to what God is telling you because this is so fun and enjoyable right now. That'll kill you. Turn now. Drop it now. And if it's difficult to let go, ask him for grace. Ask him for grace to drop it now before it gets 
worse. 